You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Dr. Thaddeus Gala. He's the founder and medical director of uh, Complete Care Health Centers in Southern Oregon. Website is drthadgala.com. Dr. Thad Gala. I performs educational lectures on nutrition, weight loss, and diabetic management in the clinic and at various locations around the country. And he has nationally published research and has been the keynote speaker at schools and teaching facilities, uh, speaking to audiences of a thousand people or more. He's the author of a couple of publications, including The Secret to Defy Disease and Decay and The Cookbook to Defy Disease and Decay. So, uh, Thaddeus or Dr. Gallo, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, this is great. Looking forward to uh, diving into some, some fun stuff today. Yeah, so I, you know, I've asked a lot of people, I've interviewed this, um, when people are interested in health, and unfortunately, usually it means that uh, either themselves or some family member or someone they know has had a significant health problem. So, you know, if you don't mind sharing, what prompted you to get into the health sphere? Yeah. Um, yeah. G- g- great question. So my, my origin story goes back to when I was about 10 years old. And uh, there's pictures of me uh, with a crowbar remodeling the kitchen with my dad to get ready for my mom's wheelchair. And... Uh, all the doctors said the same thing. Sorry, there's, there's not much that can be done. Uh, whatever your mom has, it's, it's progressive. She'll be spending the rest of her life in a wheelchair. Uh, have a nice life. And she went to doctor to doctor and uh, unfortunately couldn't find any answers. And since then, I've spent my entire career, my entire life uh, path, and my mission has been to help people naturally reverse chronic disease without the use of drugs or surgery so they can live a high, fulfilled, quality life. Um, as a result of that now, I think, as you mentioned, I, I, I'm the CEO and I, I founder of, of four different integrative medical clinics. Uh, I oversee about 42,000 patient interactions a year. And uh, for, for me personally, aside from running those businesses, I, I try to stay abreast on uh, not only the, the emerging research, but also I work with a select handful of, of clients uh, that have some kind of Western chronic health issue that they want to get rid of, whether it's Parkinson's, diabetes, uh, sleep apnea, fibromyalgia, arthritis, Alzheimer's, whatever it is they want to get rid of or slow down or stop, uh, they come to me. And I, so I work with a handful of clients at any given time, um, somewhat selectively in that. So um, 
I've, I've gone down the natural route and, and just to kind of book in that story. Uh, now my mom is in her seventies. Uh, she's our, our lead health coach. She just started running 5k races a couple of years ago. And uh, now wow. she has to find, find younger and younger friends, uh, which to me is pretty darn good <laughs> given that uh, she, she was told she'd be in a wheelchair the rest of her life and uh, almost lost her job, was on full disability, couldn't use her hands, couldn't even uh, write, she had to wear braces. Uh, like I said, she almost lost her job. The only reason she was able to keep her job was, was other teachers at the school district that she taught at were, they, they kind of changed the ruling. And they, they allowed kind of a, a loophole to where they allowed other teachers to donate their sick time to my mom so she wouldn't lose her job while she was trying to go through oh, disability wow. and so forth. So, yeah, it's pretty, it's, uh, health is pretty near and dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, I've seen, you know, obviously Western medicine has its place um, and it's certainly not in, in prevention or wellness or corrective care. It's in, you know, surgeries and life-saving emergent type care. But unfortunately, we, we, we often lump everything into that, and that's uh, we run into a lot of problems with that mindset. That's true. So, I mean, health is very expansive. What areas of health and wellness have you decided to focus on? Well, right now, I'm, I'm doing my PhD on reversing Parkinson's, uh, largely because, well, a couple of reasons. Um, I, I started off doing mostly fibromyalgia and chronic pain reversal, um, and then it kind of just ballooned into other things because a lot of the same uh, lifestyle behaviors and, and things I was doing, working with people on, uh, you know, health techniques and so forth, which I'm happy to dive into some of that today if, if you feel uh, prudent or helpful for your listeners. And the more that we dove into that, the more I realized that there was the, the sequelae or the secondary health issues started to resolve as well. So uh, when we started realizing that, I went back and, uh, you know, looked at the research and found the, the, the correlation. And so uh, the reason I picked Parkinson's for my PhD was that, uh, I, I feel like it's, it's kind of the, the forgotten uh, neurological disorder. Alzheimer's gets a lot of de- attention. Dementia gets a lot of attention. And we get such great results with Parkinson's. Uh, I mean, I was even just talking with a, with a gal last week. She's, she's off of um, all of her carbidopa, levodopa. Uh, her, her voice is getting stronger again. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure how much familiar you are with Parkinson's, but one of the leading causes of death with Parkinson's is, is people either choking on food or suffocating as they, they lose yeah. the mobility with their vocal cords, et cetera. So she's able to talk better. Horrible. She's able to chew, she's able to swallow better. Uh, she can function. Uh, her and her husband now have value in their future together. Uh, so we've had some great results. I've just dove into that, even though there's a tremendous amount of crossover into Alzheimer's and, and just about every other chronic health issue that people um, are suffering with. Well, let's start with uh, the Parkinson's. So what, I mean, the, the fact, even the fact that you're getting a PhD and how to reverse it, you know, the non-traditional way or the non-standard of care way is amazing that you even can get a PhD in such a thing and you wouldn't be uh, discouraged or simply disallowed from doing so. But what are the, the methods by which uh, you're able to help people with Parkinson's? So mo- most people are familiar with the, the, the concept of, of subclinical inflammation. Um, but unfortunately, that's kind of where most people's understanding stops. And uh, just for those people that maybe this is their first exposure to it, if you look into pretty much any any medical journal today, you'll find that almost every article that's, that, that's talking about a patient population or, or a disease, it'll almost always start with, uh, you know, a line in the first paragraph or so along lines of, well, now, now that it's well understood that inflammation is the driver of X disease, just fill in the blank there, um, you know, we now go on to, and then they talk about their study. So by inflammation, I'm not talking about the inflammation that you experience when you sprain your ankle 
or, or you get a cut on your hand, that's acute inflammation. What I'm talking about is, is this low-grade, uh, long-term insulting type injurious stimuli, kind of like smoking, right? Smoking doesn't give you lung cancer overnight, but if you smoke a pack of cigarettes every day, that low-grade kind of constant assault that's on the background, it's, it's just this, this kind of white noise in the background that at first you don't think is a problem, but it builds up and the cause and effect is so far delayed. You know, in the case of smoking and lung cancer, you know, looking at 15 to 30 years to maybe never getting lung cancer. Uh, and it took us decades before we all got on that bandwagon and realized that smoking wasn't good for us. And uh, so the inflammation is the same thing. So to, to answer the first part of your question, what we do is we look at people on an individual basis and we, we identify about 12 different areas that are the biggest sources of inflammation. And, uh, and then, we, then we go through that person's life and we, we, we find out how and what we need to do to not only reduce the source of causative inflammation in their life, but then we look at what, what can we do to then maximize anti-inflammatory things in their life. And it's one of those things that, that most people, you know, they look at it and they think, oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm already pretty healthy. I don't have inflammation. And I would say, well, first off, if you take any prescription medications and it's not for uh, a short-term infection, then you have inflammation. And it, it, I mean, really, that, that's probably the simplest way to look at it. Or if you're, if you're, you know, even even just 10 to 20 pounds or more overweight, you have inflammation. Uh, you know, if you have if you've ever been diagnosed with a Western chronic disease, you have inflammation. Bottom line is, everybody has inflammation, and it just depends on how high or how low your inflammation is and how important it is to you to live a high-quality, long-term life with, with reducing the risk of chronic disease. And if that's important to you, then really understand this inflammation and, and going through those different levels in your life and taking stock and working with someone that can really uh, you know, kind of see around corners for you is, is really, is really uh, if you want to optimize it, that, that's the route that I typically suggest people go. Okay, so what is inflammation if you look at it on a, you know, a physiological level and how does right. it arise? So inflammation is, is the body's natural response to something that is considered an injurious type stimulus. So just using the smoking example, since we already kind of opened up the door on that one, if you smoke, it causes this low-grade irritation to, to your lungs and your airways. And, and it, it doesn't necessarily cause a problem at first. I mean, it, it is unhealthy, but your body is very resilient. So it can, it can fight that off. If you just smoke maybe, let's say, three cigarettes today, and that's the first and last and only time you'll ever smoke cigarettes, your body will be able to, to clean itself up after that. But what happens is, th th so that's an injurious stimuli, but your body then would, would normally respond to that. It would heal the area, and then it would turn down, turn off, and you would stop smoking. But what happens is, if you keep smoking, your body then keeps seeing this as an injurious stimuli, and your body is very resilient in that it, it likes to protect itself. So what happens is then it starts to respond to this, this injurious stimuli and these chemicals that are in cigarette smoke, just for instance, and that's when cells start become, becoming cancerous. Just, just for a simplistic illustration, what happens is almost like kind of when you walk barefoot, you build calluses on your feet, or if you use your hands a lot, you know, you're, you know if you're a farmer or work outside or construction, you're going to build up calluses on your hands, right? That's your body's natural defense to toughening up the area and protecting it from the insult. But what happens is when you smoke too much for too long, that low grade, instead of you building, let's say maybe like that, that callus in your lungs becomes cancer. And that's the problem. So if you, if you do things in your life, which there's literally infinite things you, you can do that will cause inflammation, and we can dive into a few of those if you want. But what happens is then when, when you do those things in your life, 
then your body builds up a callus to that. So, and that's where genetics comes in. So for instance, if you have the genetic predisposition for, let's say, prostate cancer or heart disease, well, if you do things in your life or are exposed to things in your life that causes your body to elevate its inflammation, which is, which is typically a natural healing response, but the, but the cause that's causing it for the inflammation to go up doesn't get turned off, mm. then what happens is then those genetics get activated. So it's kind of like your whole body is exposed to this injurious stimuli. So it's essentially kind of an active scar tissue in response to that. So for you, if you have high inflammation, you may develop prostate cancer or heart disease. For women, they have a likelihood of developing breast cancer. Uh, for a lot of people, they'll, they'll develop Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. And, uh, it, it, and that's just the genetic weak link. So when we look at all of these disease processes or aging, aging diseases, and we look at them individually, we're really missing the boat because pathologically speaking, they're one and the same when you look at the actual chemical breakdown of what's going on at a, at a chemical level. And that's probably one of the biggest veins of Western medicine. They compartmentalize things so much, which I understand it's important to have experts and so forth, but we compartmentalize things so much that, the, I mean, I think it'd be good for most Western doctors to go back and learn the song, you know, the, the knee bones connected to the shin bone and so forth, because we, we just completely, completely turned into specialists. Why? Because it pays more. I mean, I could get into the whole politics of, of how it's broken and why our, our system actually incentivizes sick care and, and it incentivizes doctors to become more specialized because they get paid more, et cetera, as opposed to um, wellness providers. Um, but that actually like accelerates and feeds forward this mantra because then you have this endocrinologist that's maybe focused just on the thyroid or something, and that's their specialty niche, even though they're an endocrinologist, and they're not that versed on on other health issues. And so so all they're not putting all the systems together, or they refer you out, and then you get on this jungle gym kind of effect, and it's, it just turns into a mess, and it's so much more complicated than it needs to be. So um, I would guess most of the people that you see, they have some sort of persistent inflammation caused by diet or other stresses and that manifests itself in you know many things but one of them is parkinson's right yeah absolutely yeah diet's probably one of the biggest ones for most of most of our patients i usually use kind of an 80 20 rule we can get them 80 percent there if we focus 80 percent of our efforts on correcting 80 percent of their diet uh to start <laughs> and, and we'll probably get 80 percent of our results from that approach so yeah, I kind of use that, that 80-20 rule, and then and then after we've seen um, good changes or, or significant improvements, and they want to keep improving, then then we'll talk about other things. Or if we're not getting good results, then we'll roll up our sleeves, play a little bit more detective, and, and dive into other areas that can be sources of inflammation. Yeah, it's funny. I, there's a movie called The Naked Gun, and one of my favorite quotes ever is, uh, you know, a guy in the movie was I don't know, in an accident and all that, and they said, oh, he has a 50-50 chance of living. And the wife was happy. And then they said, but there's only a 10% chance of that. Then she started crying. Just to make a joke <laughs> about the 80-20 rule. Yeah. Um, all right. So the main the main tool you're using is diet, changing the diet. So, you know, let's focus in on that a little bit. What kind of changes do you see people need to make that, you know, are beneficial for them that alleviate Parkinson's and other kinds of conditions they have? Yeah. So, and, and even before that, um, yeah, diet's a huge one. But even before that, and for people listening, I, I really want to emphasize this, that, that even more so than diet, if, if we could maybe even just take a step back, more than that, it, it, mm -hmm. it comes down to, to mindset and the psychology of it. And what I mean by that is that, that you can tell people the, the best things to, to do and the worst things to not do, but, but it's very hard to, to change behavior. 
And so the one thing I would encourage people who are listening, if they really, if, if they really want to make a change, you have to tap into an emotional reason first. First, establishing why it's even important to them that they're talking to me. So, for instance, like this, like this gal with, with Parkinson's, you know, I'll go through and I'll first ask her, you know, why do you want to get rid of your Parkinson's? And then maybe she'll say, oh, well, you know, I can't, I can't move my hands as well. I can't walk as well. Uh, you know, I can't talk as well. I'm like, okay, well, and why is it important to you to, to improve that? And, well, you know, I want to be able to move more. I want to be able to be more active. I want to be able to, you know, communicate better. Okay, well, why is that right. important to you? And usually I'll go through about seven, you know, like it's like the phrase, the seven levels of why. Until with her, I finally realized that that for her, she wasn't able to go to church anymore. She wasn't able to to go to her her granddaughter's uh, uh, wedding. Uh, she wasn't able to sing in church anymore, and she was completely feeling isolated because all she could do was basically get up in the morning and go and lay down uh, on the sofa, and that was the extent of her day. So for her, it wasn't that she wanted to get, wanted to get rid of her Parkinson's. It wasn't that she wanted to have better mobility. It really was that she wanted love and belonging, and that was the core emotion. So once I tapped into that, that core emotion, then I was able to more or less repeat that back to her because when I would give suggestions about do this food or don't do that food, or I want you to get this sleep pattern, or I want you to do, do uh, you know, look through these chemicals in your shampoos or your conditioners or whatever it is, the thing, would, the thing that she may say is, oh, yeah, but I really like that, or that's my favorite lotion, or this is my favorite food, and I'll say, so let me ask you this. What's more important to you, going to church every Sunday with your family and your loved ones and making those memories and making it to, uh, you know, your granddaughter's anniversary of her wedding or eating those foods? Yeah. And so it's a huge yeah. tool to leverage against when somebody is going back to old habits. So even before I start with the nutrition, I, I have people do that exercise either independently or um, ideally with somebody, because when you do it with somebody and it's a little more guided, you can get a foundation and and people will, will have a much higher chance of success when they've clearly articulated their goals with a strong uh, overriding or uh, either overriding or foundational emotional, uh, a core emotion. And usually those, by those core emotions, I usually look at something that has to be instinctual. So love and belonging and, and belonging to a tribe and feeling connected, that's fundamental to our process and, and to our happiness. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then, um, so once I have that clearly established, then and only then, so I usually start diving into what, what, what they can do specifically from where they're at. As a general rule, the, the foods that cause inflammation are usually all the foods that most people already know. Uh, sugar, grain products, seed products, vegetable oils, dairy products, um, too much salt. Uh, so yeah, grains, sugar, seeds, seed oils, salt, processed foods. But the problem is, is that, that we're, we're not honest with ourselves. And what I mean by that is I can't tell you how many times I've had people, they call me up frustrated and discouraged. And, you know, they, they just hired me. They've just paid me all this money. And after the first weeks or so, they're not seeing any changes. And they're frustrated, understandably so, because they're expecting some, some great miracle, even though I, I try very hard to be very, very realistic with outcomes. And I can't tell you how many times I've said, okay, um, what I want you to do is I want you to tell me some things that you've been eating for the last week. And mm. almost invariably, They'll come back and they'll say, I'll hear words such as just and only, meaning, oh, well, I went out to eat and I, and I just had a couple bites of garlic bread, or I only had one piece of cake at the birthday. And then what happens is, as soon as I hear someone say just or only, I know that they know that they're doing something wrong. 
because just and only are minimizing words and if they're not honest words. And whenever I hear someone say, oh yeah, well, I had a salad and I had just a you know, piece of cake for dessert. Well, why didn't you say I just had a salad and had dessert? Why didn't you flip it around? So the very nature that people choose those words speaks volumes to our realization of our subconscious of trying to hide what we're actually doing. So it's the accountability yeah. of it. And on top of that, you know, I'll see people say, oh, well, well, I just had one coffee today. Okay, so you had one coffee and maybe you had some creamer in it or some sugar from, from Starbucks. And then uh, you went to work uh, and, and let's say for breakfast, you just had one piece of toast, um, which, which displaced other healthier foods. And then maybe for lunch, you, had a, you just had a sandwich, which displaced other healthier foods. And then for dinner, you only had a few bites of, of pizza uh, that, that went with something else. And what happens is you may only be having you know, one coffee once a day, but how many other things are you doing throughout the rest of the day? Those would be the overall foods that I would talk, talk about. And so what I do is I have people actually fill out a one-week nutrition log. And it's amazing that exercise, um, oftentimes, once people go through some of like our educational program act of having them do a nutritional log, will we'll mm -hmm. often prompt them to look at it, self-reflect, and self-correct. A couple questions on that. Um, any tweaks you found that make for more effective versus less effective logs, like take a picture and write it down by hand versus typing it in, or, you know, report it to someone yeah. else? I mean, what's the best way for people to do it? The best way for people to do it is whatever works for them and going back to their emotional reason. Because some people listening to this right now may say, oh, God, I don't want to write it down. I don't want to put it in my fitness. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And, and, and people right now are already probably balking at the idea, even though they know it will be beneficial for them because they haven't established a clear emotional reason. And, and you know, it's kind of like Viktor Frankl talks about man's search for meaning. You know, he said suffering without meaning is despair. But if we have meaning... Mm -hmm. Then, then we'll go through the suffering. And the very act of writing down and logging things, that's, there's a certain amount of suffering that goes with that. It's not fun for most people. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It feels like homework. And it's not fun. It's, it's a form of mild suffering. So we oftentimes avoid it. But if we know that there's meaning to it, and that meaning goes back to the emotional reason of why we're even waking up in the morning, what do we have to live for, then the suffering is tolerable. It's like exercise. Exercise hurts, and it's suffering. But, but people do it every day because they have a meaning to it, because they want to either look better, they want to get healthier, they have a, uh, an activity or an event that they're competing for, so they're training, so they have some deeper meaning that they're looking for. If you, all day long, if you walked around and you felt the same pain as you feel at your peak exercise, it'd be miserable. But when there's meaning attached to it, it's tolerable and it's actually, it's actually almost desirable uh, for, for that. So again, the, the hack I would say is, Establish your why and, and keep digging until you have a strong emotional reason. Uh, and I'll, I'll know that I hit it with clients and, and patients. What usually what, when, they, when they start crying, that's when I know that we've hit it and then we can move on to the next thing. I don't go until I get someone to cry and be a jerk. I genuinely try to create the space to ask questions and to pause and to give people time because they're so used to 5, 10, 15 minute office visits that most doctors never actually create a space of silence of listening and letting patients actually talk. I think research shows that the average doctor interrupts after about 30 seconds of a patient talking. And of, of a 15 minute office visit, I believe the average 15 minute office visit, only about two to five minutes is spent on the chief complaint. And mostly that's just asking about symptoms. So in a 15 minute office visit, how, you know, how much can you really connect with somebody? Like I said, usually my first visits with somebody if not face-to-face, -face, it's usually over Skype or my least favorite is over the phone. But I usually spend an hour 
on my first consults with people. And probably more than half of that, because usually I get their case beforehand and I get a research and, and, and do a deep dive before they, I even talk to them. So I already know all the sciencey stuff, or, or at least the vast majority of it. So when I get on the phone, I just need to clear, clarify a few things. But then when I get on the phone with people, that's where we can really dive into why the heck it's even important for them. Because then when, when we get to the tough stuff, we have to roll up our sleeves about telling somebody, hey, do this nutrition log. And they say, well, I don't want to write it down. Well, can you, can you put it in your phone? Well, I don't want to put it in my phone. And you just keep hitting roadblocks. I can easily go back to that. And I would encourage people to do that themselves. And that's, that's a brain hack. So, so that's my brain hack. And that's my tip that I would offer is, is establishing a clear why and a clear emotional reason. Maybe it's you want to be with your kids for a long time. Maybe you want to be, be able to run and play with them. You want to be around for your uh, great grandkids. You want to be able to you know, be more intimate with your partner. I know libido is a big one for people. 70.7% of the population is either overweight or obese. I haven't met any one of those people that, that is happy that, about being overweight or obese. I mean, the majority of the society is overweight or obese, and I've yet to meet anyone of those people that loves being overweight or obese. So even though we know we want things to be different, we're still not able to. Hmm. All right, so you have people do a food log, and when do you review it with them, and what's that experience like when you review it with people? Yeah, so what I'll do is usually I do a food log with people if they're not getting the results, and my sniffer kind of picks out that they're feeling frustrated and I'm not able to necessarily navigate the conversation successfully with them without them feeling more frustrated. So what I'll do is I'll offer that. And it's almost like a, like a third party counselor, if you will, because it's not coming from me. It's not coming from them. Because when I start working with people, sometimes, and this is kind of rare, but sometimes some people, you know, if they're not getting the results right away, they start to feel a little bit like, like it's a them versus versus me, and I'm almost the bad guy because I'm telling them to make all these changes. So by having them do the nutrition log, it's something that they're doing and they're writing themselves. And so it, it's, it's really just an opportunity for me just to hold up the mirror and then asking them just to look and open their eyes. So I can just hold up the mirror for them, and oftentimes that's enough for them to look and, and take a deep reflection. And Nine times out of the 10, it, it self-corrects just, just by that exercise and me just creating that space to say, okay, send it to me. You know, I, I know you're not getting the results you want. I, I, know, I know that you, you think you're doing great and you probably are. Let's do a nutrition log for one week. Send it over to me and then let's go over that together. And then as soon as they get it, usually they'll, I'll say, okay, so what do you see in here? What, what do you think you're doing well? And what do you think could, could improve? They'll go through it. Quick question. What if you had a, a number of food logs where you've already gone through it with the person and identified, and there was like two different ones, a before and an after. And what if you took the names off the identifiers and you showed that to the people who are doing the food logs and you said, you know, these are not your food logs, but I just want to show you some examples. I want you to evaluate these and tell me what you think if this person is doing a good job or bad job and, if, you know, and what happened with them. I don't know. It might be just interesting to get people yeah. in on the that aspect of it and see because then it's not them, and then they'll be evaluating someone else's. I don't know. It right. would be interesting. I, I think that's a great, a great idea, and, and it certainly may work. I haven't done that specifically. When I've tried things similar to that in the past, what I've found is that when I'll share other people's stories, if it's not similar enough to their own story, people will, will oftentimes unconsciously actually, uh, what I've found is they'll actually use that in defense of their position. And they'll say, oh, well, well, gosh, see, see, this person's food log is way different than mine. So this, you know, I, I'm doing way better than this person because I only drink two coffees a day versus they drinking four coffees a day. And, and what I found is sometimes when I share stories of other patients, if I'm not careful, I, I found that it's, that it's backfired. 
I, I think what, what you suggest is, is, a, is a good, a good um, observation and suggestion, especially if we could get it to where, the, to where it had a certain level of similarity so that they, would, they were really identifying with it and could almost maybe see it as part of their own. And, uh, and one thing I'll add to that is usually by the time I'm doing a, a nutrition log with somebody, we've, we've already established a certain baseline foundational education with them. So they, they already know a wide breadth uh, and depth of which foods are inflammatory and which foods uh, are, are anti-inflammatory. So, so again, oftentimes, once they get that mirror in front of them, they can go through and they, and they, can, they, they can readily self-select and, and highlight. And then if not, I can go through and outline and then if we need to do it again in a couple months to, to make sure if we need to course correct anymore, uh, it, it's, a great, it's a great tool to look back and reflect on. Is there a certain set of people that have to be super strict in order to get results? Or for the most part, if people just are 80% good with their diet or dialed in, they'll get the results? Yeah, great, great question. I, I, would, I would say it entirely depends on their goal. Um, I, to, to answer your question at first, I'd say if people are you know, 80 to 90% compliant, they're going to see some good improvements. For me, uh, you know, I, I have a goal to live to 150. So if someone wants to have a high, a high quality, rewarding, fulfilled, active lifestyle until they're well past 100, then you know, I, I kind of turn the question around. I say, well, how good do you think you should be? Uh, and, and oftentimes when people come to me, I'm, I'm their, their last hope. And, and they've tried everything. So usually when they come to me, they're pretty bad, so, which, which actually is good from the standpoint that we usually get to see results quicker. It's like the more sick that somebody is, the more obvious the results and the faster the results versus if someone came to me and they were an elite athlete in their mid to late 20s, you know, and they're already at, at the 94 percentile of their peak performance window, you know, of their VO2 max or whatever measurement you're using, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm what, maybe going to help them squeak out another one or 2%. Which to them, you know, might be noticeable, but we're, you know, if you're talking about like Olympic athletes or high performance people, it's going to be a lot harder to see those changes. But if you're talking about somebody that's, you know, 60 or 70, uh, they're overweight, they have low energy, they're on three to four meds, uh, you know, you're going to see results um, pretty quickly. And I think one of the biggest things that I see, are, you know, if you look at all those nutrition logs, I, I think the biggest thing that I see is, is things slip into their nutrition logs and into their day that they don't even realize. It's those hidden things that are in either sauces or, or um, seasonings, or uh, they go out to a restaurant and they don't realize what, what cooking oil that the chef is using, uh, or a whole host of other things that they don't realize are, are slowly adding up. And, you know, it's kind of like the example of if somebody came to me and they had lung cancer and they were a smoker and they said, well, gosh, doc, you know, like, how important is it for me to give up smoking? Do I have to give it up completely? And I'd be like, well, you have lung cancer and, and it was caused by the cigarettes. You're like, yeah, you should give up smoking. Yeah, but doc, but do I need to give it up completely or can I just give it up like 80%? You know, it's kind of a rhetorical question at that point. So I, I kind of use the same, the same based on whatever someone's goal is. Um, I, you know, I, I turn the question back to them to empower them to make their own, own choice. I just, I just lay out the, the, the facts and figures for them as best I can. Okay. Any unusual or interesting outliers or things you've seen when, uh, when you're evaluating people? Really memorable interactions yeah, or guess, results that, uh, you know, were interesting? I, yeah, I, I think the thing that, that stands out uh, in response to that question, which I think is a, is a, is a good question, is, is how much we, we think that we are in control and how much in reality we are, we are so driven by our instinctual desires and drives and, and how much we, we almost consciously refuse 
to, to admit that or recognize it in ourselves. And I know a lot of people say that, you know, oh, we're so much more advanced and we're not wild animals and all that. And, and I get that. And yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you don't see, you don't see, you know, chimpanzees or bonobos building skyscrapers or putting planes in the air. And I get that. But at the same time, you know, look at places where there's a natural disaster and the power goes out and the infrastructure goes down or the grid goes down for, let's say, four to seven days. And look at what happens in those areas and how quickly pandemonium sets in. And all of a sudden, people that were very well civilized immediately revert back to their instinctual. There's looting. There's tribalism. You know, there's there's violence. It immediately, immediately we click into survival. And the problem is, is that we're 24 to 48 hours away from that. And what I mean by that is, I'm not saying that somebody's going to go start looting, but because looting is a complete loss of, of your, your reasonable control over your actions. And neurologically speaking, 99% of our actions and our processes is not of our volitional control. And arguably, even the 1% that is under our volitional control isn't, isn't even of our own free will. And to, to kind of illustrate just, just a real soft point without getting too deep of a dive into free will... You know, I, I'm not saying someone's going and looting or, or robbing or using violence in a state of, of, of pandemonium or infrastructure collapse, but rather when somebody comes home from work and they're hungry and they, they didn't prep ahead for dinner and they're tired and they're 40 pounds overweight and they have their three or four medications that they're on and they have a lot of fatigue and they know they're unhealthy and yet they still knowingly then in that moment, in that moment, they knowingly reach for something that's unhealthy for them because it's either easy, it either makes them feel temporarily good because they had a rough day, or they look at it as a reward. And so they eat something to satisfy an emotional need that is driven by an instinctual drive. Because if it wasn't instinctual, and if it wasn't an underlying instinctual drive that was prompting that action, then our frontal lobe and our reason would set in and say, gosh, you know what? I'm, you know, X amount of pounds overweight. I'm on these medications. I don't want to keep going downhill. I know that food or beverage X is not healthy for me. And I know that food Y or beverage is better for me. So I'm going to make the conscious, rational, civil decision to choose those foods. But yet 70% of the population, actually, I'd even say more than that, doesn't. I mean, I'll fully admit that I've certainly done the things and eaten things or drank things in my life that I knew were not healthy for me, but yet I do it. I did it anyways, and I'm sure I'll probably will in the future. So I just offer that to say that I, I think we, we underemphasize the impact of our subconscious and our instinctual drives, and we, we tend to overemphasize how much we think we're in control. And it's like driving a car blindfolded thinking that you know where every curve is. It's borderline madness. And I'd say that just look at the health stats. I mean, life expectancy just dropped for the last two or three years in a row. We've gone from 3% of our GDP on healthcare to now we're at 17, 18% of our, of our GDP goes to healthcare. Uh, I mean, I, I believe that healthcare very well is, is going to be the next bubble because of how much it's propped up and the free market is, is being so well pushed out of, of healthcare and it's being so propped up that eventually there's going to be, a, I think, a healthcare bubble. But, but yeah, so to answer your question, I think it's, it's underemphasizing the instinctual and it's overemphasizing or this falsity that, that we think that we're in control when in reality we're not. So we have to set up systems, yeah, sure. processes for us to win. Well, very good. Well, uh, you know, we've gone long. We're, we're kind of at the end now. But uh, what, you know, not everyone can see you, but uh, of the people that can, what area can they come from or can anyone in the country see you and how do they 
how do people get in contact to find out more and work with you? Yeah. So, so I work all over the world. So I've had people from Australia, from, uh, from Canada, um, Japan, you know, all over. So given the technology today, it, it can be, be essentially anywhere. Typically what happens is, is someone reaches out to my assistant and uh, my assistant goes through uh, a, a brief vetting process. And then usually we get on my schedule, which you know, if I have a cancellation or if I have a change or something, it can be within a month. If not, usually it's a month or two out or maybe longer. And then I'll go through. And if I think I can help that person, uh, great. We'll, we'll start, we'll get working together. And if not, then I'll try to point them in a good direction. If people really want to come and see someone in person, they can come to any one of our clinics located in Southern Oregon. Uh, or they can certainly go to our website, uh, drthadgal.com, for free resources and, and more information there as well. That's great. Well, Dr. Thad, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, I hope this was helpful for people. Glad to help out. Hopefully people got some value out of it and gave some people some action steps and some things to think about to help hopefully uh, improve their health and, uh, and the health of others as well. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.